0: The following recording is taken from classes on October 17th and October 20th, 2020. Uh, There is a transition bookmark, uh, you know, sound effect in the middle to indicate the distance uh, between these two classes because at the beginning of class on October 20th, I backed up and did a recap of where I had left off the previous class and there were things said uh, at the end of the first class and the beginning of the second that I wanted to keep to help keep things in perspective for my students and so I have left those in the recording. Uh, So with that being said let's plug in. Okay and then there's the references for anybody who wants to follow up on, on some of that. Okay, let's jump over and um, talk about the lead up to World War One. And I'm doing this here, even though we won't start World War One proper for another week or two, um, because it means talking about a couple more things regarding Queen Victoria, That just sets the stage, that you just sort of got to know in the background as we talk our way through to um, 1914, which is the outbreak of World War I. And of course, you can see here this uh, political cartoon that shows the domino effect of how the world got sucked into World War I. And you have the, you know, if you touch me, all if you make a move, if you hit that little fella, if you strike my friend, if you hit him, oh there, if you chaps do, blah, blah, blah. and and it's just like boom, 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 boom. Okay, it's a cartoon, it's silly, but it's actually pretty accurate. And what this mostly revolves around is the fact that before he died, Albert and Victoria had nine children. And unlike royal couples of previous centuries, all of their children made it to adulthood and all of them got married. So, I am not, oh yes, hello. Okay, first things first, here are a couple of grandchildren of Queen Victoria. You have Tsar Nicholas II on the left. This is the infamous last Tsar of Russia. Remember, he and his wife and their children, five daughters, and then the son, Alexei, who was a hemophiliac, a free bleeder. Um, big story wrapped around him. Um, but they, during the Bolshevik Revolution, they were taken out and killed. And the, uh, the line of czars in Russia came to an end. That's him. And he is there with his first cousin, King George V of England. And you look at them, especially with those impressive mustaches and beards, and you would think they were twins. And they're not, they're cousins, they're first cousins. But the reason they look so alike is that even though they represent totally different monarchies, they all have the same grandmama, Queen Victoria. Um, And I'm I'm sorry, that's missing. I'll correct that for whenever. I put that on the YouTube the YouTube that's yes English sorry all right so March 1863 Victoria poses for a photograph with her nine children and the bust of Albert that's the marble bust there which um, the the photography or maybe it's just the way it was scanned in you can't see any of his features Um, I'm sure if you look this up online you could find a a better uh, version that maybe shows uh, the features of the marble bust a little bit better, but surrounding her and this um, a replica of Albert are their nine children and Through her nine children England's royal bloodline would reach into the European dynasties of Greece, Romania, Russia, Spain, Germany, Hesse, which was another German Kingdom, Prussia, another Germanic Kingdom, and then several other Germanic Kingdoms, Norway and Sweden. Okay, so that's like a large chunk of Europe right there, a very big chunk of Europe. Alright, so here are the nine children and I don't think I give this to you as something that you have to memorize. In fact, I'm sure I don't because I usually don't make you memorize family trees. The only time that I really harp on that is when Henry VIII and his six wives and three children come into play. That one, like, you've got to understand, or nothing in American or British history for the last 500 years is going to make a look of sense. Um, you've got to memorize that one. But that's not part of this quest, so you're off the hook on that one but it is still good to see this printed out. Prince Alfred married the daughter of the Russian Tsar. His daughter became the Queen of Romania. Princess Alice married a Prince of Hesse. Her daughter married Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia. Princess Victoria married German Emperor Frederick III, and her son was Kaiser Wilhelm II. If that sounds familiar, you've probably already studied World War I because he is a big player in World War I. And then Victoria's granddaughter became the Queen of Greece. And that's just those three children. That's not dealing with the other six. So you can see just with that as a snapshot that... Uh, The the way Queen Victoria's family tree branched out into the royal families of Europe. um, It had a pretty far reach. Pretty far reach. Okay. Here is another way of looking at that family tree. Um, And simple eh, chart. um, But uh, let me see. Let me come around here for a second so I can just look at it on the big screen. Um, Hmm. okay, here's Albert, here's Victoria, and so you have their children here, and then they'll add these little lines that show you who they married, so Victoria married into Germany, um, and then, okay, sorry, yeah, she married a Prussian emperor, and then you get Kaiser Wilhelm. Edward uh, married the daughter of the King of Denmark. Okay, and then you get Albert. Alice married the Tsar of Russia. Alfred married um, the daughter of Alexander II of Russia. So we got a double Russian tie there. Helena married into Holstein-Augustenburg, another Germanic kingdom. Louise married the Duke of Argyle. Can't tell you a whole lot about that. Arthur married into uh, Prussia. Leopold married... Helen of Waldeck and their son became the Duke of Coburg. Coburg is another Germanic kingdom. And then Beatrice married the king, uh, oh, sorry, she married Prince Henry of Battenberg, and her daughter married the king of Spain. And then through other things we get to uh, Prussia, of course we have the Prince of Wales. The, uh, the uh, granddaughter marries the king of Norway Anyway, you get the idea. Complicated, but by the time we get to 1914, what does this mean about all of the crowned heads of Europe? They're all related. They're all related, which means that World War One is more of a family feud, quite literally, as much as anything else. I mean, yes, it involves governments and supplies and blockades and... You know, poor Archduke Ferdinand, he gets assassinated, but it basically, this the trigger, and, and it's back, going back mm-hmm. to that original political cartoon, so all of a sudden, that domino effect has a very different tone to it, because these are not just, you know, guys in the schoolyard are like, don't mess with my best friend or I'll beat you up, like, these are all first cousins. They're all cousins to each other. First and second cousins. And so it's like, you know, my mama and your mama are sisters. And so if you don't do what I say, then, you know, it's that kind of domino effect. You
1: thought your family dynamic was bad. At least it didn't end in a world war. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> you talk about putting the fun and dysfunctional, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> talk about a mess. So, so... Again, to alleviate any concerns, you do not have to memorize the family tree. All I'm asking you to do is to try to wrap your mind around this just enough to know that World War I is at its root a big family feud, and that is very disappointing. That slide is um, not showing up very well. So, cut into the chase here, and I will give you the part that doesn't show on the screen. Um, Congress of Berlin happens... Uh, From 1884 to 1885. And it's during this time, um, during this Congress, that the rules for colonization in Africa are laid down. um, And for what's going to happen in Africa over the following 15 years. So basically from then until the year 1900. Because 1900, new century. So this is the big um, sort of uh, deadline. France, Britain, and Germany were the major players. The chief point of dispute, and I think this is where your other blank is, the Congo River Basin. That's Congo, C-O-N-G-O, River Basin. Of course, this is in the heart, the very center of Africa. Everybody got that? All right, so here's a map of Central Africa. You see the Democratic Republic of Congo. You see all of the rivers networking through there. Now again, you've got the Sahara Desert to the north, you've got the Kalahari Desert to the south, but through Central uh, Africa, you've got this rich, lush, jungle region. Yes, Cameron. Can we go back to that last slide? Okay, sorry. Did did I jump again? Okay. Sorry, I didn't realize a couple of you hadn't finished writing. And I am sorry about this. um. Can you repeat what that last line says? Yes, absolutely. France, Britain, and Germany were the major players. Chief point of dispute, the Congo River Basin. The Congo River Basin. Yes, yeah, the Congo River Basin, the uh, chief point of dispute, the Congo River Basin.
1: I guess it's true what they say about not wanting to work with your family. Yes, yes.
0: Yes. Um, I am always in awe of um, people who like you have the family business and everybody works together for years on end without killing each other. Some families can do it. God bless and move move on ahead. Um, but a lot of families cannot do this. A lot of families would commit justifiable homicide if they had to work together in a an official capacity. Along with hey I have to live in the same house with you um, and and yeah and, and it's really fascinating with all or almost all of the major players in World War one like they're all related to each other and not too distantly either I mean yes in in a philosophical sense we are all related to each other because we're all descended from Adam and Eve but that's different from like um Let's see, who has the most siblings in here? I used to be able to pick on the beans because there were like 10 million of them. Um, I don't know, I, I guess four is maybe sort of the average for some of our, our larger families now. Or even think, I'd say, I think most of y'all know the Nortons. Their youngest daughter graduated from Lighthouse last year. There's 10 Norton children. And Anna, Anna Ruth who graduated last year, she was the youngest of 10. So, this would be like saying that Anna Ruth, you know, was the queen of Norway, and Esther over Spain, and like all of their siblings being, you know, the crown head of a different uh, country in Europe, and then the war breaking out, and so you not only have the political nye going back and forth, but you also have it complicated, well well, you remember at my 13th birthday party when you did this one thing and it just ruined my birthday party? Like, there were those sorts of complications, too. So, yes, um, having that kind of family feud on a global scale, like, it's it's so ridiculous and so tragic at the same time. Okay, so the big disputing point in... uh, africa is the congo river basin which you see there as part of a map but let's go on to this because this gives you a better idea of why everyone was fighting over it and even though we're sending representatives to the congress of berlin they are representing different family members in you know different countries and so it's almost like um everybody, all of these siblings talking to each other through their lawyers. And they're trying to figure out what to do about the Congo River Basin. And you can tell it's lush, it's fertile. There's so much land in Africa where you cannot do farming. This is why in Egypt, the Nile River is king. And even now, it is still considered as being this this sacred space in Egypt because you can't grow anything for most of anywhere else in Egypt, but you get to the Congo River Basin and you have these raw materials that are seemingly ripe for the taking and um, and it exists here and not really elsewhere in Africa. So prior to 1880, this is part of the scramble for Africa. This is the, you've already done the map. Here's sort of the philosophy behind that. Prior to 1880, Europe had very little profound impact or influence in Africa, minus the whole shipment of slaves to the new world. So we're we're not going to lump that in under the heading of little influence or impact. But in other ways, as far as like setting up governments um, and building networks of railroads through the jungle, very little impact or influence in Africa, but in the final 20 years of the 19th century, there was a full-on land war as European powers vied for a solid foothold in the dark continent. So this is one of those big disagreements that happens leading up to World War One. It's not the full trigger, but it's one of several things that get thrown on the trash pile that's about to burn, okay? Um, it's also one of the big arguments that starts setting these first and second cousins, these crowned heads of Europe against each other because they are all competing for the same chunks of land in Africa, just like they were competing for the same prize at the birthday party 20 years earlier. So there's this sort of double competition going on. Um, You also see there another political cartoon, the Colossus of Rhodes. And of course the Colossus of Rhodes, the original Colossus of Rhodes was one of the uh, great wonders of the ancient world. This is Cecil Rhodes um, who, Uh, represented British interests um, and was angling for um, imperialist ambitions for Africa. So wanting to really expand British holdings in Africa. And so they have him as this Colossus of Rhodes, but instead of straddling a harbor, he's straddling the entire African continent. Wow. I might actually get this done. Hey, you know this map. We've done this one before. We'll keep going. Imperialism in Asia. We have to at least acknowledge that some of these same entanglements that we're talking about in Australia and India and South Africa and now the Congo is happening in Asia too. But I'm not, I'm not going to give you any notes on that. Just know that it's happening and know that we are now at the brink of a very deep rabbit hole. And once we dive in, we're going to hit certain rocks on the way down, but there is no way to study the entire rabbit hole as we're falling through it. So just know that this kind of land grab is not just happening in Africa, but it's also happening in Asia. And you see, have certain colors there that show you... Who's grabbing what? So this is where the United States grabs the Philippines. Um, That's why it's the one yellow section. It's part of the Spanish-American War, actually. The Philippines was one of four countries granted to us at the end of the Spanish-American War. It's the Philippines, Guam, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. And the Philippines was the only one of those four countries that actually staged a rebellion against the United States and demanded their own president. So to this day, they have a very complicated government system. And I know I've, I've, I've got the head nod going over there. I, I've already talked to one of our lighthouse moms who might be able to shed some light on that for us later because um, I, anytime I can, I'd like to get people who, you know, had their growing up years in another country and can get that contrast between here's life in America versus life somewhere else. Um, I always like to get their opinion brought in on things. So, But this is where uh, we get the, the Philippines. And of course, you see how it's been divided up against other um, players, but, uh, but you see how it, it tends to be the same, you know, handful of countries over and over. Germany is not represented on this map, but... Um, is, and then the German Empire, again, just a reminder that we did not have Germany in Germany. We think Germany is like Hitler Germany. It's like this particular blob of land in Europe. No. The Germanic kingdoms, it, it still had a very medieval look to it prior to World War I. You have Coburg. You have Saxony. You have Prussia. You have Hesse. And it is only after World War I that we get a chunk of land in Europe that you and I would recognize as Germany. And then the world in 1914, this is on the outbreak of the world the, the, the map is starting to look familiar, but there are still certain sections that are very different from what you would recognize now from a world map. And then, of course, the current world map. I will let you look at this on, at your leisure um, later on. But here's where I want to wrap up. I've got this and one more slide that requires some note taking. The causes of World War I, all right? So I have just like dumped a ton of detail on you. I've gone on some of my favorite soap boxes about India and Australia and, and some other things, but distilled down to its basic components, these are the five reasons that World War I broke wide open. Militarism, this is a policy Of building up strong military forces to prepare for war. Everyone having a standing army that is ready to go at a minute's notice. And it's all about we've got to build up our military. Because at any time our enemies could turn on on us. Our allies could turn on us. Militarism. And then alliances. Agreements between nations to aid and protect one another. So... Most of the crown heads of Europe were related to each other at the onset of World War I, and of course that naturally plays into alliances. One of the reasons that Germany ended up on the opposite side of the war from most of Victoria's grandchildren, and, 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 and this is where like, the personal really carries over into the political, uh, Wilhelm apparently was Victoria's favorite grandchild. Or, or one of them. And of course it's never good to play favorites among children. It's never good to play favorites among grandchildren. Um, but there were some very hard feelings. Between Kaiser Wilhelm. And his cousins. And a lot of it had to do with. Just the, the whole perception. That uh, William was somehow. Preferred from among all of Victoria's other descendants. Um, it's not the only thing that plays into this, but it certainly didn't help matters. So you have alliances and the the alliances are being drawn up somewhat along political, uh, political lines, but also somewhat along family lines. It's like, well, you and me were always good friends and of course her, mm, yeah, we, we've never liked her. If she's for this over here, then we definitely don't want part of that. And so you get those family complications. Then nationalism. And this is old world nationalism. Pre-1914 nationalism. Nationalism being pride or devotion to one's country, not the government. You know, I am proud of being Greek because I am descended from a long line of Greeks. I speak Greek, and I am Greek Orthodox. This is the religion of my people. I have nationalistic pride in that, not, you know, I pledge allegiance to a flag, Heil Hitler, goose step behind the dictator. I am proud in my country, not my government. Did I see a hand up? Yes. Is
1: this like the last breath of like monarchies in Europe before... World War One because after they were all like, Oh, we don't want a dictator, we want a democracy or something like that with all these like cousins marrying and becoming powerhead figures and stuff and then going to war with one another, it kind of flips the political system on its like, head.
0: If if the world map was a chessboard, World War One is the <clears throat> table flip that resets the entire game. It it just completely changes all of the rules. It it resets us to a new game. Um, When Victoria died, and I'll have to end here because I know we're out of time, and there is one more slide, but I'll just have to give it to you next time. Um, When Victoria died in 1901, she had a very long, elaborate funeral, and all of the crown heads of Europe came to it because these are all of her children and grandchildren, obviously. But it was, it is... They didn't know it at the time, but it was the last great um, gathering of all of those British monarchies. By the end of World War I, most of those monarchies no longer existed. And the ones who did had been radically altered. But... Uh, this is one of those big listing questions that it's not just lighthouse specific. This is any history class since World War One. When you talk about the five reasons or the five causes of World War One, you're you're remembering the Mania acrostic: militarism, alliances, nationalism, imperialism, and assassination. Um, and I believe I talked through the first three. Uh, by the end of class the other day. So militarism, we're building up strong military forces to prepare for war because we expect to go to war imminently. We might not, but that's what we expect. So we have everything ready. We build up a big army. We build up all of the uh, supplies that go with that. In the German's case, and of course they took everybody by surprise with this, uh, that included the manufacturing of tanks. Now, even with the tanks in World War I, some of y'all know way more about armaments in the military than I do. Now, I'm not gonna lie, that is not my wheelhouse. I know isolated bits, but I cannot talk competently about the whole of military structure and armaments. But one of the things that I do know, and this shows you the mindset between uh, the uh, uh, warfare mindset from the Germans of World War I versus Germany of World War II. Um, and part of it's a technology thing as well, but the original tanks that they built for World War I, the allies, the people fighting against uh, the Germans, realized that if you were in a narrow space and a tank was coming your way, if you could lie down flat between the treads, the, train, the tank would run right over you and you would be no, no harm, no foul. Uh, No, no worse for wear. Um, And so that just became something that all the soldiers eventually they they figured out, they told each other, it's like, hey, if this happens, you know, angle yourself so that you're between the treads and then just lie down flat, it will run right over you and then you can get up and keep running or keep shooting. Well, World War II runs around and the soldiers are like, oh yeah, and by the way, if a tank comes your way, here's what you do and they were giving that knowledge based on what their daddies and granddaddies had told them about World War I. Well, no, the Nazis, uh, being the Nazis, um, enough said on that point, uh, in their updated tanks, they had included a third wheel under the belly of the tank. So the, the first several skirmishes of the war, you had these guys thinking that they were gonna escape and lying down and yeah, they, they, they didn't get to get up on the other side because the third wheel crushed them. Um, So militarism, Hmm. alliances. Okay, it's a big family feud. There's a lot of alliances. You know, I'm with you against this person over here. Nationalism, we've talked several times about this. This is old world nationalism. Devotion to one's country, to one's ethnicity. One of the things that will be a lot of fun, um, and it's fun for me anyway, um, whenever we get to World War One proper, is to look at a lot of these photos of soldiers as they were going off to war. Like, some of the militaries had, like, standard uniforms. The Germans did. We did. But a lot of these people went off to war wearing the traditional military garb of their group. So, like, the Scottish went to war wearing kilts. Um, and then you had Uh, uh, of soldiers in India going to wear wearing their turbots Um, you know they're, they're just such a wide variety of these photos and you keep going through them and you can tell even if they are quote in uniform there are these very distinctive elements about their dress that indicates not only what country they're from but also sometimes what subgrouping of that nation, like what ethnicity, etc.? Imperialism. Okay, we've already had this ism before. When one country takes over another economically and politically, so they're controlling the government and they're controlling the natural resources. But the match that sets off the powder kick is the murder, the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And this part, you might have even been able to fill in some of the information on your own. This is another of those points in history where even our little kids, we teach them June 28, 1914, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So on this auspicious day, Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated by Gavrilo Princip, or Princip. 18-year-old student working for the Siberian terrorist organization The Black Hand. Questions regarding the Serbian government's involvement in the assassination were raised. Austria wanted to stop the Serbian menace and went to their German cousins for backup, for backing, for support. There you go. This, This is the thing that sets off the entire cascading row of dominoes. So what you see there in the central photo, and this is from June 28th, 1914. um, They're going on an official tour. They are in Serbia. They are there to tour um, territories and principalities that belong uh, uh, to them. So it's, you know, the official tour in the open car where they can see and be seen. And this photo was taken probably less than 30 minutes before the assassination. Um, and, of course, you see there on the left the uh, the coat that uh, Ferdinand was wearing. Um, direct hit to the chest. You know, there, there's no coming back from that, certainly not in 1914. Now, the irony of this is that... The reason Gavrilo was able to get so close to the car and fire the shot that he did is because the driver of the car took a wrong turn. And as with a lot of these European countries, even today, you go off of the main drag and these side roads get very narrow. And you know, they're meant for pedestrians or they're meant to get by with just like a horse and buggy. And so the car took a wrong turn and realized that, you know, he couldn't go in reverse. He was going to have to go forward. And so it created this unexpected detour. And it was during this detour that Gavrilo uh, came alongside the car and got up on the running board. Because, you know, those older cars had those little running boards, those little steps up. And was able to fire point blank into Ferdinand's chest. So if the car had not taken the wrong turn, would he still have been assassinated anyway? Good question because Gavrilo was not the only member of the Black Hand obviously Um, but on that day, that's what happened and he was it. Yes, Leo? There have been multiple attempts beforehand by a bunch of
1: other members of the Black Hand. Mm -hmm. I think one of the merrimac of have. I think he tried to shoot Fernand, but he uh, missed or something, and like a
0: crowd uh has guy to death. Yeah. 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 It, the, the, the interesting thing with this, and yes, you're right, there had been multiple attempts on him before that, even that day. Um, but it was the detour that sort of broke down everyone's guard. It went off script, you might say. And of course, once something like that goes off script, then that's when your uh, opportunists sort of get through the cracks. Um, yeah, and Serbia itself has been a very volatile area for a very long time. Keep in mind, this is very close to Wallachia and Transylvania. So that whole, you know, Eastern Europe uh area there, um, just uh, full of just even smaller ethnic wars with all of these governments layered on top of that, and a lot of unrest traditionally in that area, or at least has been so off and on for the last 100 years or more, more actually, 1914. okay and then we have a picture here of the new york herald uh proclaiming the news um and of course his his consort that would be his wife um the duchess of hohenberg um and so basically and you see there um the title archduke francis ferdinand and his concert, the Duchess of Honburg are assassinated while driving through streets of Sarajevo, Bosnia. Okay, and um, and basically, we don't have a formal declaration of war at this point, but this is setting the stage. This this is the the 9/11 that changes things for everybody. Like you get up the next morning and you read the paper and you go. Oh my goodness this is this is going to change some things because again with so many of the crown heads of Europe all being essentially part of one big family like there was going to be no easy way to untangle all of this. Um. Yes and then of course uh, I think this is maybe the last little smidge on your note-taking sheets there. European allies quickly scrambled to declare their alliances and allegiances. The United States, however, did not join the war until April 1917. And this gets into, um, I think I even made copies of it. Yeah, the... I'll, I'll do that closer to World War One, but this gets into like the Zimmerman telegram and the sinking of the Lusitania and all of that that is what pulls America into the war in 1917 so this is something to remember um, a, a lot of historians even non-American historians will say that America's entry into the war when it happened is what caused Germany to lose the war because By the time we get to uh, the spring of 1917, everybody else, they're exhausted. They're so deeply entrenched. It's trench warfare. And a lot of these entrenchments, like they hadn't moved in six months, eight months, a year or longer. And then all of a sudden the allies get this new influx. It's fresh blood, fresh enthusiasm. And then also the fact that the Americans have this way of just thinking outside the box. I mean, we come from a culture where, you know, historically, like you make your own way with, it's it's you, your horse, your dog, your, your bowie knife, your shotgun, and you're just figuring out how to do things on your own because all of the raw materials are there. It's just a matter of accessing them or bartering with the right person, you know, claiming the right homestead. And so we have this very do-it-yourself mentality. And if the kit isn't there, you don't have the toolbox, well, there's a way to do this, just let me think about it for a minute. And it was that kind of spur-of-the-moment inventiveness of the Americans that really tipped things uh, there in the final uh, months of the war. Yes? The
1: Lusitania, wasn't that the ship that sunk before the Titanic?
0: It before? I know it was... You um, know, the Titanic was in 1912. The Lusitania was 1917 Um, and uh, yeah. In fact, one of the things about the Lusitania is that um, uh, part of the big question mark there and I will give this to you in notes later, you don't have to write this down, um, was about whether or not the Lusitania, which left New York and was headed to Europe, whether or not they had armaments that were intended for the British. And the Germans, you know, actually had representatives standing on the docks as people boarded the Lusitania and they were handing out flyers saying, we believe that this ship is carrying cargo that violates this this treaty, this agreement, what have you. If this ship leaves harbor, we will open fire you need to sail another day. The problem was that all of these flyers, that they, these memos that they were handing out were written in German. And most of the people boarding the ship that day could not read or speak German. And so everybody's like, oh, maybe there's a new schnitzel place down the road. Yeah, we'll do that when we get back. And they boarded the the ship anyway. And then of course, uh, once it left harbor and got into international waters, the Germans opened fire, and then that's when the boat sinks. A lot of innocent people died. A lot of innocent people who couldn't read German, apparently, and um, and that and the Zimmerman telegram, which and people still debate whether or not that was authentic or if it was falsified in order to get America into the war, um, which uh, was promising land to Mexico that America had wrongfully taken. So, you know, if if you will do, you know, uh, this, that and the other for us, then we will give back to you like, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, California, because all of this is rightfully Mexico's anyway. And of course the telegram was intercepted and decoded. And then between the telegram and the Lusitania, that got the Americans blood up. And of course we, got into the war at that point. So um, yeah, interesting stuff. All right, this, I did not give you any blanks for this, but this is something that needs to, and and actually, instead of doing all of the crazy circles, what you need to focus on are the blue and the red. All right, so uh, you have you need to make a list somewhere, even if it's in the margins of your notes, the uh, triple entente and the triple alliance. So the triple E and the triple A. Because this is the us versus them dynamic of World War I. So if you're on the American side of the equation anyway, this is you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. So the, quote, bad guys, the Germanic side of things, you have Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. You don't have to worry about the years that are included there. Although the years, what that is for, the way these circles overlap, is this shows you when those countries made their alliance, they, they signed a peace treaty, they signed an accord that showed, uh, that declared that Italy and Austria-Hungary would back each other up in an event of war. They made that agreement in 1882. Italy and Germany also made that agreement in 1882. Austria-Hungary and Germany, both of them being Germanic kingdoms, they made their agreement a little bit earlier In 1879 Um, and so on the let's see oh I think this one has Miss Earl double check this for me I believe this has the names reversed because the allies were Russia Britain France and the Entente were the Germany Italy Austria I want to double check those labels. I I think the color coding is reversed on that. Um, But Russia, France, and Britain, and uh, Russia is sort of a wild card in here because when the war started, they were under the authority of the Tsar of Russia, Tsar Nicholas II. By the end of the war, the czar and his entire family had been exterminated. They'd had the Bolshevik Revolution on top of World War I. And so Russia had essentially had a personality change. Um, I, I'm going to wait till we get to World War I proper, but there's this fun little activity uh, that we get to do called If World War I Was a Bar Fight. And uh, in terms of a bar fight, uh, Russia is the drunk guy that gets hit over the head with a chair and he wakes up with a different personality. That was Russia during World War I because they started the war as a monarchy. They ended it communist. Uh, as if World War I wasn't complicated enough. <laughs> okay. So far, I believe that is, that, that is correct. That is correct. Okay, so that is my, my brain trying to switch things around. Okay. Alrighty, well that's why I wanted you to double check because sometimes I do second guess myself.
1: Right, It's like looking at
0: a word and going, did I spell that right? Oh yeah, well it's like uh, the other, I, I guess it was Sunday, uh, we were singing a hymn in church and it used the word extol. It's one of the older hymns and it used the word extol like six times in one verse and by the time you get to the, you know, you reading this from the screen, by the time you get to the bottom you're like, is that word even spelled correctly? Yeah, yeah, it's spelled, is, is it's spelled correctly? I think it's spelled correctly because you don't usually use the word extol, let alone six times in one sentence. But, eh, so yes, yes, I, yeah. Okay, so there, there are your two groups. There's the Italy, Germany, Austria group, and then the Russia, France, Britain group. And of course, when America enters the war, we enter on the side of Britain and France and what's left of russia as far as like having a personality change and then of course bulgaria serbia like that is sort of the 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 focal point the balkans that's where all of this rips wide open that's where uh archduke ferdinand is assassinated and then the ottoman empire you know notice that they are technically lumped in with the alliance But that alliance doesn't happen until the eve of the war itself, it happens in 1914. Okay. And then, just sort of as a preview, uh, Australian soldiers in Egypt. Now if you're going to send soldiers to fight in the middle of the desert, you get you some outback cowboys. That is such a cool picture. Isn't it though? And on camels. Like this is what's so fun and weird about World War One, as tragic as it is on so many levels, is that it's it's the um, it's the collision war. It's the war that it was the last war to, where um, soldiers rode into battle on horseback, or in this case, camelback, and uh, employed swords and bayonets. Um, but then we also have mustard gas, and we have tanks, and we have. Planes. We have the Red Baron, the Red Baron, um, which, you know, if you know Charlie Brown and Snoopy, then you're familiar with him as like a, a reference within a cartoon uh, a context. But the Red Baron was an actual person, and he was like the flying ace of World War One. Um, but yeah, that's just, you know, I love it. And of course, that, that must be the general just chilling out. His camel's just like done for the day. He's just... <laughs> Sitting and ruminating. Yes? Uh,
1: there was a German general at the end of I think it was actually World War II because uh, that was when Norway and Sweden and all those northern countries got involved that said, um, if I was to take hell, I would take the Australians with me to take it because if I was to hold it, I would take the Swedish with me to hold it.
0: <laughs> that's that's fun. That's Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that quote, but it, it makes sense to me. Well, and if you think about the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Finns, as far north as they are, like, you, you have to, you, you talk about, like, digging in in a, what's generally considered a very inhospitable region. Like, they're probably the only ones who can compete with the Russians for outlasting, brutal winners. The
1: funny thing with them is, like, on paper, I think, they surrendered, but their government was still technically like, here's ammo to kill German soldiers. They <laughs> yeah. were, like, throwing stuff to militant groups that popped up out of nowhere, aka the Swedish the, the army that yeah had gone underground and was just still fighting, but on paper they had surrendered to try and keep civilians out of the war as much as they could. So
0: yeah, there are a couple of grisly photos from the Second World War that like they're they're morbid but they're also kind of funny because these groups that you're talking about there there were some um some key battles that were fought in those regions during a very fierce winter um, during the second world war and um, some of the german soldiers froze to death because again they apparently are lightweights when it comes to like super cold winters um but what the they would uh i, I guess that's where i'm getting the allies confused is that it's the allies in world war ii but we're the entente in world war one and <laughs> that's that's what i have to keep straight um but the allies uh, and what they did, and especially like in, in Norway, Sweden, is that they would get the corpses and then stand them up, and like pack snow and ice around their feet, so that if like the next wave of Germans coming over the hill, they would come and they would find their own frozen countrymen doing like these little zombie grimaces at them and you know it's meant to demoralize them but it's like hey we found another dead one get some eyes let's build a snowman do you want to build a snowman you know it's just like this weird kind of fun thing that's kind of sad and sick at the same time but you know the world war is it's one of those things where where it gets ironic like you have to laugh because the bad parts are just so just supremely bad that you got to get your last in when you can
1: because like the the normal Norwegians i know used to like during the winters they were just tied up in like the mountains and stuff and there's pictures of the soldiers they look like ku klux klan members because <laughs> all they're wearing is pure white <laughs> like just yeah. completely white soldier out the uniforms mm-hmm. and the Germans are walking up in blue well it's normally good camouflage but <laughs> they're standing in a snowfield, field yeah. and they're getting massacred because they can't so see anybody and there's like five guys on the hill going hey look there's 500 Germans let's just start shooting them Yeah, and there's tales of like five Norwegians taking out entire legions of German troops because they were wearing white snow uniforms and the Germans couldn't see them. You get
0: five snipers who are very well camouflaged against an army that didn't plan very well. And yeah, it's like the ultimate David and Goliath kind of story. That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.